Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Fandom Science Podcast. Today's episode is a really special one because we have the head of sport performance and strength and conditioning coach for the St. Louis Blues, Eric Granahan, who was so generous with his time to sit down with me via Skype and talk about a bunch of different topics, including how the players are staying in shape while the NHL season is postponed, what the strength and conditioning regiment looks like in the regular season compared to the playoffs, pre-game and post-game workouts and the idea behind them and the benefits of them, injury and recovery and how his work can help with that, and of course we talked about drinking beer out of the Stanley Cup. I really hope this provides you with some sort of entertainment while you're sitting at home bored, but most importantly I hope that you're all staying safe and taking care of yourselves and your families. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy. Eric, thanks a lot for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, it's not every day that I have a Stanley Cup champ on the podcast, so this is a huge honor for me. Sure, no problem. Happy to be here. Yeah. Um, I'll, look, I'll be honest with you. I'm a huge Blackhawks fan, so seeing you guys go on that run last <laughs> year hurt my feelings, but uh, congratulations on uh, a well-deserved run. Um, how are you spending your days now with, with no NHL season? Like, What does work from home look like for you? I'm trying to uh, piece out my days. Uh, really, I'm trying to spend time with the family, first and foremost, obviously, with our season being as long as it is and the travel schedule being what it is. It makes it tough uh, in the eight months plus of, of uh, playing hockey and traveling to really get that quality time with the family. So I'm using this as an opportunity to, to do that. But uh, when it comes to work, I'm trying to plan out the windows uh, during the day where I'm reaching out to our athletes, communicating with them on what their needs are, both from a programming perspective and from um, an equipment supply perspective. I need, I know that a lot of them are stuck at home now and they need to have access to equipment supplementation and then programming. So I'm really trying to do it, be diligent about that. And then um, just taking the opportunity to do some, personal and professional development on my own obviously opportunities like this to chat with you and you know reading books and um doing things like that i think those are all all of the things that have been making up the the bulk of my days and i think it's a huge opportunity for me to continue to um to capitalize on those those opportunities yeah like it honestly is a as as crazy as that sounds it's kind of like a blessing in disguise almost but I know it's hard to say considering like the times we're living in right now, but it, these are the times where you can catch up on those kind of, kind of stuff where you would never have the time for that during a season. Um, so, um, I'm just wondering, so you're mentioning, um, the players and their workouts, their, their equipment and all that. Um, are you able to give them any equipment in the meantime? Like, are you, are you able to provide that? Uh, well, I haven't been able to give them any equipment. We, the, right before this whole thing happened, and um, right now we're in a, we're under a shelter-in-place order uh, from the state of Missouri, and then from the city and county of St. Louis. So it's been very difficult for me in, in terms of getting access to some of that uh, equipment that I might have at the facility to share with our athletes. Uh, we we played Anaheim probably now it's almost I guess two weeks ago, and as soon as we arrived home from Anaheim, um, the NBA had shut down their season and yeah. the NHL soon, soon followed. Right. So as soon as we got back, 
we were told that um, the facilities were going to be closed and we're not allowed in the facilities uh, and neither were our athletes. So needless to say, it made it difficult to really gather some of the things that I thought I might need. So what I've been trying to do is uh, connect them with some of my vendors. Uh, for the guys that stayed in town, connect them with some of the vendors that I use to get equipment from and, and they're helping out. Um, they've been awesome. And then the guys that have taken the opportunity to quarantine themselves in their home cities. I've been trying to help them uh, through reaching out to different vendors in the area through my network and really trying to get as much as I can in, in their hands in terms of equipment. But it's it's definitely hard on everybody. So um, yeah. people are being flexible, and you know I think it's it's just uh, it just goes to show that people are still willing to help, and it's awesome. That's awesome. So when everything is back to normal, hopefully sooner that, rather than later, um, are you going to get the players on like an accelerated program or something to catch them up back to shape in order for the playoffs or? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, that's all really up in the air. I think the NHL still hasn't made a decision. Obviously they're waiting on um, what the government and the, the scientists and medical experts deem appropriate in terms of returning to larger group settings. But I think once, once that decision is made and they figure out what's going to happen with our season, whether it goes from the regular season to the playoffs immediately or not, I think that, you know, from what I've been told, there's going to be a window for us to simulate a, uh, a modified preseason style camp session where we can get the athletes uh, back on ice, doing some workouts appropriately and trying to ramp them up for whatever that playoff scenario looks like so i think we're going to have a little bit of time um but again it's all up in there right now right so just out of curiosity like how do you expect the performance to look like when things uh you know when the nhl playoffs are back uh not just from the blues but just like the whole league in general do you think it's gonna look sluggish like if you compare the playoffs this year to uh the upcoming year i mean to to like previous years do you think it's gonna look slower it's gonna look different what, what, what are your expectations yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I think it's certainly going to be unique in terms of what we're going to be watching and how the athletes are going to be playing. I, you know, when you go from game 82 and you got that four or five day window before the playoffs start, you're really kind of ramping up. You know, most of the teams that are in the playoffs right at that point are their goal has been peaking um, during that, you know, last stretch of the season. And I think it's right now you kind of, you take that opportunity away to give the athletes that opportunity to peak. And so I don't know, really, I can't say, I think you are probably going to see a little bit of a feeling out period more than you would in a normal playoff series. Um, I think you're going to find that the, the teams are a little bit more cautious. Uh, I think you're going to find that the teams are trying to use the opportunity as efficiently as they can, but I don't know that it's going to look like playoff hockey right off the bat, you know, but again, it might. It's just hard to say. Yeah, it is. I'm. I'm kind of expecting everybody to look almost like William Nylander from last year, where he held out, came back. It was tough for him to kind of get the the body going. Um, yeah. That's kind of like my expectations. I don't know. Um, yeah, so, I don't know how he yeah. played or not, but I mean, yeah, I don't know if that. I don't know if I can picture that example or not, but I think it's certainly going to be. I, I don't think it's going to be what we normally see at the start of a, a regular. Uh, playoff scenario yeah but you know what when when it's back nobody's gonna care because everybody's just so like hungry for to watch anything on on tv hockey nhl like nba anything people are gonna love it either way 
Yeah. So switching gears from the all the COVID nineteen talks because it's already depressing not having it on TV. Um, can you explain <laughs> how the nature of the strength and conditioning training uh, changes throughout the season? So you kind of just mentioned peaking. So can you describe that like process from the beginning of the season until the end? Sure. The start of the season really you got to look at it from from a kind of a, a developmental perspective, right? If we get an athlete in at the start of the season, we're assuming that that's, as, that's their 100%. That's as good as we're going to get that athlete physically probably for the, the remainder of the season. And, and that that's really not, you know, at the fault of the strength and conditioning coach or the team or the player themselves. It's really just a, a matter of circumstance. And I think when I look at, the plan for the season and how I'm going to work with the athletes to develop them and maintain what they were able to accomplish in the off season. It really gets broken down into month by month segments. I think planning for the season, uh, for, you know, a yearly plan for the season, it really doesn't work well for me because, uh, right now I'm, I'm a solo operator and I don't have a staff of people working together in my department to really focus on breaking down specific areas with the, you know, a group of individuals. And I have to think about the team and the players globally in the sense that if these guys come in and we have a slow travel month in October, I can use that to work on a few things that need to be worked on. I can also use that as a way to ramp up the intensities so that when we go on the road, quite often in November, we can maintain and reduce some of those strength decays that we might find from travel and, and a very dense game schedule. So I think if I look at it from a, a long-term developmental model, I think I, I get a lot more out of it by chunking into those various months because, as you know, the, the schedule of an NHL season is 82 games, uh, but month to month it changes drastically in terms of maybe we're at home more often than not or, or we're on the road more often than not and that what that does is it changes the access to equipment and you're at the mercy of what the schedule dictates so it's really hard for me to plan out for the year but it's much easier for me to plan for developing athletes each month or, or ramping up to the months where we're not going to have as much training time Right. Uh, so a lot of it is kind of scheduled based. So it probably differs from team to team too. Like it's not like it's a uniform process too. Um, so, but what about the playoffs? Like what does the strength conditioning training look like in the playoffs where you're playing um, every other day? The, the games are much more physical. It's a lot more taxing. Um, how does that look like? Yeah, it's certainly a different season, right? We look at it from, from regular season to playoffs and we think, okay, we're just going to keep, uh, doing what we're doing, we're going to load manage, we're going to rest when we have the opportunity. But I think it really depends on the systems and the style of play that's driven by the coaching staff and the, and the organization, right? Because if I look at it from a, a strength and conditioning perspective, it's hard to just say what's ideal when you're playing every other day and you have a seven-game series and you might be in the city for, for four of those days and normal season in the regular season you're normally there for one day and out so i think we have to look at it um you know from that perspective we have to look at it differently but on, on the other end of the spectrum i have to understand what the demands are of our athletes based off of those systems so for us the way we operated last season was 
we trained more frequently in the postseason than we did during the regular season because our style of play was very physically demanding, not only on our team, because we were playing a very heavy four-check style of game. We also had to impose that physicality on the other teams, and that's very physically demanding on them. So for us, the goal was to continue training, keep our uh, load microdosed, uh, which I, you know, is a term I take from uh, Derek Hansen, and I utilize that model to keep our athletes under more manageable levels of stress rather than just taking the day off because it was a, a day between games. I don't know if that makes sense or answers your question, but we we really tried to to ramp up what we were doing to make sure we were able to maintain the level that we were at when we got into the playoffs. Because as you know, last year we had to basically play from January through April just to make the playoffs. And I wanted to take that level that we were at at the end of the regular season and continue to try to uh, improve upon that. And so we wanted to make sure uh, at bare minimum we were maintaining that level and um, rather than resting more, we, we continued to train. Okay. That, that actually makes sense. And that's actually the opposite of the answer that I was expecting. But now that you explain it that way, it definitely makes more sense. So what you're saying is like um, making the playoffs on its own, like took so much out of the players that you want to maintain that level of um, you want to maintain that momentum that they had going in. So you didn't want to give them too much rest, like just the optimal amount. Yeah, and I think if you look at it, the volume of, of hockey that we played last year was very high. And we were managing loads. The way we were managing loads were on practice days and, and travel days. And what we were trying to do is use intensity to offset the volume that they were under in terms of the game. And so when we were able to think about it objectively, the intensity that we were able to provide to the athletes at a low volume on a regular basis allowed us to offset that volume and that fatigue factor that it comes from playing hockey every day. And so it was a, a unique way to look at things. I think our coaching staff, you know, all former NHL players had an idea about, you know, what they thought when they were playing, but it was a, it was a new idea for the organization as a whole. And I thought it worked out well for us in terms of obviously we had some success, but it, it worked out well for us in the, from the buy-in perspective of the athletes, they, you know, they bought in and, they were into it and it, it allowed the the model to be successful. So I thought it was a, overall, it was a, a unique opportunity to try something that, that I thought was going to help the organization and, and the, in turn, the people in the organization bought in. So you just mentioned uh, load management and like it takes many different shapes throughout different sports. Um, do you think the NHL will get to a point where load management in the NHL looks like it does in the NBA where um, guys are taking games off uh, in the regular season, like way before they even clinch the playoffs. Do you think that's ever going to be a case in the in hockey? I don't know that it'll ever get to that level. I think if you look at hockey right now in the NHL, there's a lot of parity within the NHL. And I think just even within the different divisions, the separation, right? If you look at the Pacific division right now, the separation from the, two teams that are in the wild card to the teams that the three to four teams that are fighting for a wild card position. I think it's right now it's one point difference and some of those teams are even tied. So I think if you look at it from, from that angle, the, 
the parity that's involved in the NHL right now in terms of the competitive level of play right now dictates that every team probably needs their best players every night to maintain that level of play and also to maintain the position that they're in in the standing. So I don't, I don't know if I ever see it getting to the point where the best players on a team take that night off because the, the level of competition in the NHL right now is so close. And I think you can look at maybe 24 to 25 teams right now that are all really contending for playoff spot. And that's, you know, even the other five or six teams at the bottom of the standings any in any one night can beat you. So I think you have to really have your best product on the ice every night to be successful. And, and, and in order to sustain that success, you have to have those guys out there. Yeah, that actually, that's a great point. Um, because often load management, like we talk about it from physiological perspective, psychological, all that, but the parity or like the nature of the league has a huge impact on that too. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you about something I saw. I saw you were involved in a Twitter thread about this a uh, little while ago, and that's pre-game and post-game workouts. Do you mind explaining the mm. benefits of those? Um, and when are they appropriate to have? When are they not appropriate? Sure. So post-game workouts, I'll, I guess I'll start there. I think when I got into the NHL about a decade ago, I tried to learn as much as I could from Mike Potenza. He's the guy that brought me into the league. He's the guy that's really molded uh, how my career has developed in the NHL. And I wanted to really understand the reasoning behind everything. And it was an awesome experience because I was able to dive in headfirst and really be immersed in the culture of hockey and immersed in the culture of working with professional athletes, which I had only done in the private sector. So really being in the team setting was unique for me and it was an awesome experience. When I got to the St. Louis Blues, I wanted to bring all of those experiences that I had in San Jose and in Vancouver and try to mold my own uh, program and put a stamp on things. And, and what, one of the things that I wanted to do was shift the mentality from post-game lifts, which has always been the kind of the way things have been done, at least in my time in the NHL, to a mindset of regeneration and recovery post-game. I think if we look at the, you know, any one game in hockey, you're going to have some guys, you know, for my team, for example, we have some guys that play up to 25 minutes a night, and we have some guys that might play five or six minutes. But even with the guys that are playing five or six minutes, there's a high level of emotion in the game. Those guys are typically playing a very physical game. They're oftentimes on the penalty kill, blocking shots. And so although their, their duration of time on ice is, is much smaller than some of our other players, they're not under any, any less um, stress, is, I guess is the best way I could put it. So I want to make sure that when those athletes come off the ice after a game, we're ready to prioritize sleep, nutrition, and, and recovery because I need them ready for the next day's practice if it's a practice day or if it's a back-to-back game set scenario, I need them ready to play again the next day. So we really have tried to shift that mentality to recovery and regeneration post-game. Um, so I... I don't know if that answers kind of the, that first part of the question. No, that but, definitely answers um, it. Yeah. yeah, no, and that's really kind of, it's been a new, um, I guess a new idea for most of our guys, but it's it's something that we're trying to continually push and focus on 
because I think it's it's so important for the long run, right? Guys getting more um, regeneration, recovery, and soft tissue work on a regular basis is going to allow them to be more durable and resilient as the season goes on. And so what about a pregame workout? And I think this is the one that you were um – the, the Twitter thread that I was mentioning uh, was some sport, uh, some sports scientists or some strength and conditioning researchers out there were kind of questioning the legitimate the legitimacy of it. Um, and I saw uh, that you were explaining like why it's beneficial. Um, like even from a sports psychology perspective, it's good to have a pregame workout to kind of get you in the arousal level. But from a physiological perspective, what's, uh, what's the benefit of it? Yeah, I think, there's a few ways that you can look at game day lifts and even pregame lifts. I think it, from my perspective, I'm trying to give the athletes as much opportunity to feel as ready as possible to go out and play their best. And ultimately our goal is to win. And if the guys on the ice feel good and are, are able to be engaged and start the game on time, as people say, I think we're going to get a, in the long run, we're going to get a, on average, better result than not. So if I'm looking at it from that perspective, I want to make sure that during warmups, I can be as effective as I can in giving them every opportunity to do that. So one of the things that I was talking about was utilizing some of our technology to identify whether or not I needed to suggest changes to an athlete's warmup or not. And we have 22, 23 players that dress for a game. And I'd say I have about 10 or 11 guys that are, that are doing this. So, um, you know, I wasn't suggesting that my entire team does this and, and I wasn't suggesting that even the 10 or 11 guys that do do this have a change to the warmup every time. So I think that was, that was what I was kind of getting a a little bit frustrated with because in Twitter, you only have 140 characters, right? So you got to really kind of condense your messaging. Yeah, but, everybody's um, angry on Twitter too. Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So uh, one of the things, you know, to, so one of the things that we do is utilize, we, we do collect data on a regular basis. I have a lot of data. I have a, a wide database, but I most importantly, I have guys that are really interested in, in utilizing that data to make themselves better. So the guys that I, I work with on a game day in terms of making these changes, it's not just, sometimes you're looking at making an, a guy ramp up the nervous system and you're looking at how you can make this guy more excited. You know, that's certainly part of it. That's one of the, the scenarios that we're working with is if we see a little bit of need in terms of uptick to the nervous system, we'll suggest some things that they can do. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a few guys that we have that are on the other side of that readiness curve and they're too excited and take maybe five or six shifts or even an entire period to kind of calm their, their, their nerves down, calm themselves down and, and then start their level of play. And that's another area that we try to focus on is making sure that they're not too excited. And so when we go through our, our data, we can look at these guys, they do that, to, you know, they have a normal routine. We look at that normal routine and we try to find ways to, slot in one or two interventions, depending on what we see, to make their warm-up a little bit more efficient for what their level's like that day. So that's that's kind of what that Twitter thread was about. Um, 
the way we identify, I think I got asked the question, well, how do you know it's working in a game? You know, if you only had one guy that scored and you had 10 guys jump, how do you know it's working in the game? Well, the nice thing about hockey is that there's statistics galore to look through, right? And one of the things that we do as an organization is identify players in, in each position based off of, at least from my perspective, four different statistics that are game related that elicit a favorable response in terms of that athlete being considered successful for, or, or having a good game. And when I look back at those statistics for the player that the position and in the position that they play, they all had favorable statistics based off of what our organization values. So that gives me the confidence to go back and say, let's continue to do that. So at the end of the day, Twitter's about opinion and people have lots of good opinions. And sometimes people don't like those opinions because it's uh, different from theirs. But at the end of the day, if my organization values certain statistics that come from the game and those players continue to meet or get close to those levels of, or, or the standard of, of those levels, then I'm going to continue to do that premium warm up and intervention. Yeah. Because I mean, when I was kind of reading that, the question popped in my head is like, when you have a, a team or like when you're in a position like yours, you're confined to a small sample, which is just the roster of the St. Louis Blues. Like you're not afforded the luxury of a lab where you can have like a randomized controlled trial and look at differences between groups and all that. So you're in a much trickier position uh, when you're working like practically in the field and trying to find short term results because that's the that's how the business is oriented. Uh, and I think sometimes like people forget that that, that difference exists between a lab setting and a in like a practical pro sports setting. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there's definitely a dichotomy between research and application sometimes, right? So if I'm looking at it from the position that I'm in and the, the office that I sit in right now, my entire directive from our organization is to give our athletes the ability to be available to be selected for the, the lineup, number one. And if an athlete does get injured, try to make them stronger as fast as possible. So really, I have one directive. Allow my athletes to perform as well as they can by giving them as many opportunities to do that as I can uh, as a strength and conditioning slash sports science slash nutrition guy, right? I'm doing all of those things. So if I can find something that I think is going to work and have a guy that's willing to try it and he goes out and has a good game, it potentially there's a placebo effect to that. But even at the end of the day, when we think about a placebo, if the athlete feels good and is in a good mental state, then that's going to allow them to be effective. And so if I can utilize these different tools that we have access to, to give our athletes a more mental or a more clear mental state and give them some more confidence in their abilities, and it, for me, it's a win. And if it's a win for me by the athlete being engaged, then, like I said before, on average, we're going to have more favorable outcomes than not. So I think that, for me, is, is number one because I need to help our team win, and that's all, all our team is caring about right now is winning. And so if I can provide that for our athletes in any small way, then it's, for me, it's a victory. Yeah, like like you mentioned, the like a placebo is the most powerful drug that you can have. So... If, if someone feels like it works for them and it's helping them, then there's, 
I mean, there's no harm in at least just kind of letting them believe that, like at the very least. Um, so yeah. you're talking, yeah. So, so you're talking about um, tracking on ice performance. Um, I'm just wondering, how do you incorporate analytics in your work? So, like, how do you marry the data that you get from the lab? Uh, sorry, from the gym with the players on ice performance like do you work closely with the analytics department uh with the coaching staff how does that work yeah that's a good question so there's there's two things that that i'm doing on a regular basis number one it's first and foremost communicating with the coaching staff um i have to understand what their opinion is of the athletes i also have to understand how these athletes individually are going to fit into the team and the lineup. And really, I think Matt um, Price said this one time uh, and it really stuck with me that you have to, I think he said you have to be, have a PhD in the sport, if I'm remembering correctly. But that really resonated with me because I didn't come from hockey and I didn't play hockey growing up. So I've always really had to understand how to read the game better and learn the game and, and focus on some of the things that are, uh, especially early in my career were foreign to me. So first and foremost, my communication is, is happening on a regular basis with our coaching staff. So I understand the situational perspective of what's going on with the athletes. And then on the other end of that, I'm working with our data analyst, uh, especially in, in terms of the game data, to understand, like I said before, what our athletes in the different positional groups are doing in terms of valued statistics. And again, I'm making sure that what I'm doing is trying to meet the organizational goal, not just uh, train a defenseman in a certain way because I think that's what a defenseman needs. I'm, I'm trying to allow these players to, as efficiently as they can, express their abilities so that they meet the, the valued standards of the different statistics that our organization uh, holds in high regard. So I'm working with those, those guys to better understand the mechanical and the physiological aspects of what I can assist with in terms of training, uh, returning an athlete to sport more quickly and, and more appropriately and allowing them to fit themselves back into the team so that they're able to play the systems and the style that our coach wants to play. So um, I know that you're like the players are not allowed to wear monitors in regular season games uh, in the NHL, um, but the league is introducing a chip next year where they can wear it in the jerseys. I'm wondering, is, th is that going to provide any data for you as a strength and conditioning coach that you can use? Or is that mostly for the analytics department to track like zone entries and stuff like that? You know, I don't know that it's going to be as useful to me as a strength and conditioning coach uh, as it will to our data analyst. Um, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to have access to that in, in practices unless our team decides to put chips in all the practice jerseys. And right. so that information that happened in the game isn't going to be telling me the same information that I'm going to be able to collect from practice from the wearable technology that we utilize. So I don't know that it's going to give me an advantage as a strength and conditioning professional in terms of creating better interventions and, or even impacting my decision-making processes. So I don't know. I don't know that it's going to help. I think it will help our data analysts be more specific 
in terms of some of the things that they're looking at on the statistics, right? Like it's like you mentioned zone zone entries or, or even zone denials. I think those are two uh, specific statistics that potentially are being used to identify players in each position that are, are having a successful game. So if that gives them a better opportunity and, and even a more accurate opportunity to analyze these players, it's going to make my job easier at the, in the long run. So I, I don't know if it's going to directly impact me or not, but I do feel like there's going to be some value that you can collect from it. it I just don't see it impacting my day-to-day operations or my decision-making processes. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so this is a question that I've kind of been thinking about for quite a while now. Um, I had to write a paper last uh, last year as kind of like my candidacy exam. Um, a part of it was on like the genetics, um, genetic makeup of an athlete. I'm wondering, so as sports science gets more advanced, we're starting to find out like more and more about genetics and the role in injury risk and response to training and all that stuff. So has that genetic testing made its way into the NHL at all? Or do you think it's still its infancy and too early for that? I'd say if I'm... If I'm going to give you a, an educated guess, I would say we're still in the infancy in regards to understanding how genetics are directly impacting athletic ability, injury resiliency, and just overall health. There are certain teams. I know the, the Sharks and uh, Vancouver and some of the teams that I've had experiences with and even other teams that, that I don't have direct experiences with are doing a lot with biomarker analysis they're doing a lot with trying to understand how what's going on inside the body is impacting the product on the ice. I think that's a very valuable uh, area for us to continue to explore. We're trying to do a lot with biomarker analysis and understanding how information is impacting our athletes, what type of um, supplements and interventions we can provide to the athletes that are more specific to them individually. But I would say we're we're way off in terms of utilizing the that genetic code or marker to identify how these athletes are performing. I think we're we're certainly in the infancy there. Yeah, I think from a from like a training adaptability perspective, as far as like differences between people, how they respond to training, um, the genetics work on that is pretty good. But I think injury wise, um, the data is still like sketchy for for lack of a better word wherein like it's prone to a lot of statistical errors so i think that's going to take a lot longer to uh to make its way into pro sports but you were mentioning the bioanalysis like what kind of data do you track with that what are you look what kind of biomarkers do you look for if you can even disclose that yeah i, I mean i can share a little bit we're definitely looking at biomarkers in terms of the athlete's health i think that's our biggest concern overall is the because of the duration of our season and the i think in general the differences that go on from uh, travel to being at home are, are pretty huge for us right our circadian rhythms are off quite often if we're going west we're traveling for two hours if we're going east we're traveling for one so we have we have a lot because we're in the cent- central division we're we're making trips to both coasts very frequently. So we're always changing time zones. I think that's something that we have to understand in terms of the biomarkers that we're collecting. You know, we're utilizing some of this information to really try to impact 
our fatigue levels, our rest levels. And then, like I said earlier, one of the variables that we look for is C-reactive protein. That's an indicator for inflammation in the body. And that inflammatory response is going to open up the avenue for us to have better conversations with our athletes on potentially some of the hidden information that we don't have access to just because of the, the general rules of NHL and, and the lifestyle that our athletes are, are choosing to live outside of the rink are out of our control. So if we can have better conversations by having some objective information to spark those conversations, then we're going to get a, a, we're going to have a better chance at helping the athlete. So I was, I was reading this, uh, in this paper a while ago on from 2014, it said that between 2006 to 2012, there was 40,943 man games lost because of injury in the NHL that added up to a total of $218 million in lost salary. So like it goes without saying injury is a huge concern for all, all pro sports, not just in, in the NHL. Um, I'm wondering if you can explain to me in, in like and to the audience, um, how does strength and conditioning prevent or minimize the chance of injury? Yeah, I think man games lost are certainly uh, on the front of certain, the, I, I would, let me restart this. I guess the, the medical department is impacted most directly by man games lost outside of the direct financial hit to the organization. So, when we look at man games lost as a, a number, it certainly looks big and impactful. I think what we have to understand is man games lost to the athlete isn't as important because the athletes focused on getting better. And oftentimes we have to sometimes delay that athlete returning to sport. Even though the pathology has cleared itself, we have to delay that return to sport so that once that athlete's back in the lineup, they're performing at an optimal level. And I think that's really where it, it gets uh, to be a little bit of a gray area for, for men games lost and the, the performance department and the medical department, because oftentimes in, in my experience in the past, an athlete clears uh, certain hurdles, um, the pain is gone, the pathology's cleared, and all of a sudden they're back in the lineup. And then what happens after a game or two, the general manager, the coach comes down and says, this guy looks like he's still out of shape. And six weeks prior to that, he was in a walking boot and he takes the walking boot off. Everything's clear and he's back in the lineup. And, and what happens is you're putting an athlete in a scenario where although their pathology is gone, their level of performance might not be even close to what it was prior to their injury. So I would say strength and conditioning and, and sports science are really trying to improve that area of man gets lost and getting athletes returning to sport more appropriately. I think in general, there's a lot of luck involved in sport and whether you get hurt or not. And there's too many factors for us to consider to say that strength and conditioning is going to completely reduce those chances of injury happening. But I will say that the more information that we can collect from our athletes on a day-to-day -day basis and the better we can get at making appropriate decisions for the individual athlete, 
the smaller that gap becomes. And I guess that, I guess that's as far as I'm going to go in terms of saying strength and conditioning definitely is impacting injuries or not. I would, I would just, I would say we're able to close that gap a little bit more, but I don't, I don't think that there's any way to say that what we do is going to completely prevent injury from happening. When it comes to concussion injuries, um, I'm sure you've heard this too. The time on ice, the total time on ice during a season is not a big predictor of getting a concussion. So like the total exposure to hockey. Um, but what does predict concussion risk is time on ice per game. So in-game fatigue. Uh, I'm wondering, does the same thing apply to musculoskeletal injuries too? Or like what are the predictors of injuries that, that you try to minimize when you look at the data? Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know if it's going to be time on ice that necessarily predicts injury. Certainly if you're playing heavy minutes and like I said before, you're playing 25 minutes, you're probably also playing a lot of special teams and there's definitely going to be impact on the body and fatigue certainly is going to allow those athletes to lose a little bit of quality in terms of movement. And when it comes to hockey, as you know, force distribution, being able to dissipate forces and, and tolerate forces from guys hitting you, it's huge. And if you are under high levels of fatigue, your ability to do those things diminish. And in turn, you certainly will be put at a little bit higher chance for injury or the probability rises for, for potential injury. What, that's why one of the things that we try to focus on with our athletes is offsetting that volume of time on ice and, and this volume of just practicing and playing hockey games with intensity. And we try to get that quality across our athletes individually so that they, you know, a guy that's playing 25 minutes and a guy that plays eight minutes on average aren't going to be under the same level of volume. So we individualize those prescriptions. But what we do is we really try to prioritize that level of intensity to offset that volume. And it, it allows our guys to build up, in my opinion, a level of tolerance so that their fatigue becomes less impactful on their movement quality. So I hope that answers your question. But that's, that's the way I perceive the injury risks in guys that play heavy minutes. And by providing that opportunity, I think that really does reduce the probability of injury. But again, we can't eliminate that potential for, from happening. So from a general perspective too, not just like on a game-to-game basis, but just the schedule in general, um, the NHL introduced a bye week, I think, in 2016, 2017. Um, and so on the surface, that looked good, but that also makes the schedule a lot more condensed because you still got to play the same number of games. I'm just wondering, from in your opinion, do you think that there are some changes that still need to be done from a, like a league-wide perspective to minimize the load on those guys? Well, I think that's above my pay grade in terms of, <laughs> of talking about that. But I will say that from my perspective, when we have longer breaks in between our games or longer windows of inactivity, we take longer to ramp ourselves back up. So I will say that the break can come at a, an, opportun- an inopportune time for some teams. And sometimes it could come at that perfect time. So 
I don't know if the bye week in general is good or bad. I think it depends on the team and the situation that that team is is in. For us, it was this year. It was backed up to the All Star break, which for us we were hosting. So it was probably beneficial for a lot of our organization because most of the people in our organization, including our head coach, were involved in the All Star game. So it wasn't really a break for for anyone involved in our organization. So I think this year it panned out for us uh, to be uh, pretty beneficial. But I know uh, with other teams, it could come at at the worst possible time where they're peaking, they're playing well, they may have gone on maybe five, five, six, seven game win streak, and then all of a sudden they're on a break. And that could be pretty detrimental for them in many ways. So I think it just really is dependent on what that team's doing and what's going on with that team at that point in the season. So this is like a hot topic right now with all the, you know, with the stoppage of play in, in those days, um, the talk about the draft and the draft combine, when are they going to do it and all that. Um, I'm wondering how much stock do you put in the NHL combine? Like from your opinion, from your experience, when you look at evaluating a prospect, I know you're not in the talent identification uh, field, but still when you see someone's combined data like how much stock do you put in that well let me start off by saying the combine has done a great job in the last 10 years to really progress i would say the nhl combine committee that's made up of a, a variety of strengthening professionals from the nhl has done an exceptional job at that so let me start by saying that um, and then i guess to answer your question more specifically what I think I get most out of the NHL Combine is the ability to see where I'm going to be starting with the potential athletes that we might draft. And what I mean by that is I'm going to train an athlete based off my assessments and how those new athletes fit into what in of them. So that, that's really what's going to drive my my work with our athletes, whether they're a prospect that's been just been drafted or, or one that's a free agent. I think it, it really has to be done that way. From the combine, I'm really getting that information uh, to provide me a, a base level of knowledge on what I'm going to be seeing when they walk in the door on that first day. So what I mean by that is an athlete that scores very well on the um, multiple combine tests or even on a few of the combine tests tells me that I'm working with an athlete that probably has a little bit higher training age than others, probably has a little bit more experience in a variety of training methods and, and training uh, or even uh, testing. And that's going to allow me to potentially expedite a little bit quicker on what we're going to have to focus on. Now, with an athlete that goes to the combine that doesn't score well on those tests, but tries hard, I'm getting a lot of information as well. So I'm really trying to, like, I think the best way to put it is I'm, I'm trying to see what type of person we're getting. So I have a better understanding of what I'm working with. Um, right. I don't know if that, that, you know, like that's kind of, for me, that's really what I'm getting out of the combine. I'm, I'm trying to understand the type of athlete we're getting in terms of, uh, experiences and mentality and effort level and and then take that uh, you know snapshot 
of information from that one or two day window that I was able to observe them and see how they're going to fit into our model based off of all the other things that we're doing uh, to more specifically identify how they play and how they fit into our training programs and, and where we think they're going to fit and, and how soon they're going to fit into um, our organizational model. Yeah, because I think um, in recent years, like more and more people have started to look at the combine as, you know, they started like write it off uh, essentially, meaning like they don't place too much stock on it. But I think it's just like any other form of data. Like doesn't it just depend on how you look at it or how you use it that that makes the, the importance for you? Yeah, I think there's certainly things in the combine in terms of the objective information that's being collected that doesn't impact my decision making um, either way. There's other variables that are being collected from the combine that I utilize uh, with a lot of granularity. And there's going to be differences not only from organization to organization, but strength coach to strength coach. You're going to have a lot of differences in how teams are assessing what information may be collected from the combine that is in the exact same manner that they collect data. So I think you're going to find there's going to be a wide range of uh, opinion on the combine. I, like I said, for me, I'm really collecting a lot more of what I would say is subjective information and, and trying to blend that in with the objective information that I'm collecting as soon as they walk in, into our doors on that first day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you just kind of mentioned free agents a bit earlier uh, when you were talking. Um, so, so when a player gets traded to the Blues or, or the, any team that you're working on, um, they have to go through an adjustment period with, you know, on-ice strategies, the X's and O's and all that stuff. But as far as strength and conditioning, do they also have to go through an adjustment period there? Or has that uh, training schedule on, like, a, you know, from a general standpoint, has, has that become uniform across the league or is it that different team to team? No, there's definitely going to be an adjustment there as well. Um, there's going to be a wide range of methods that are used in the NHL to train athletes. I don't think there's any wrong or right way to train an athlete. The NHL right now, I would say, has got an abundance of high-level strength and conditioning professionals. I mean, it's it's awesome. Um, from, you know, with that said, I think when you have an athlete that comes from another team, I'm I'm trying to in, in most cases, reach out to that team strength and conditioning coach and talk to them about the guy and see what they've been doing. And really what I want to do is I want to make that transition for the athlete as smooth and comfortable as possible. And I want to make sure that I understand what they like to do and what they have been doing so that I can make them feel like what we're offering is inviting. And uh, I think at the end of the day, I want that athlete to want to come into the gym within our organization and, and be a part of what we're doing. So I, I have to be flexible and the relationship that I have with most of the other strength coaches is one that I can call them or send them a text and ask about, you know, what do you think about this guy and, you know, what does he like to do and what have you guys been working on and maybe where are some of his weaknesses in your opinion? And I want to make sure I take that information and, and really utilize that to shape how I'm going to onboard him into our not only um, culture but the, the method that we're using to, to improve our guys 
So uh, like as much as you guys all care about your own teams and the success of your own teams, but you're also kind of like a tight knit community. There's all there's only 30 of you in the whole league or 31. So, you, you know, you, like you guys talk to each other, you help each other out sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm close with all 30 other strength and conditioning coaches in the NHL. I mean, and then, you know, on top of that, you have most teams now have an assistant part-time or full-time or a sports science guy um, or interns. And so there's, you know, the, the staffs are certainly growing in the NHL, which is incredible. And I think it's going to really help continue to push the field forward uh, in terms of hockey development. But, you know, you reach out and you're closer with some guys than others. But at the end of the day, I think we all have a mutual respect for each other. And you want to make sure that when an athlete leaves your organization and goes somewhere else, that that guy is in, in a, a good spot in terms of their ability and, you know, their mindset and their level of knowledge. And you want to make sure that you're, you're giving that opportunity for those um, players to be successful when they leave your team and vice versa when you get a guy you're hoping that they have that. And so I think by us, you know, by, by guys sharing and talking with each other and being open, I think that really helps not only the, the league grow, but it helps our, our little um, chunk of the industry get better. So I think it's a, an awesome thing that guys are willing to chat with each other and talk. And it's certainly something that I utilize um, when we get new guys is that, that, level of communication that I, I hope to have with the other strength and conditioning coaches. Usually you expect people in your position to kind of hold everything close to their chest, like not divulge too much, but you're also active on Twitter. Like you share knowledge as much as you can, uh, which is great to see. I mean, I wish everybody did that because that's more for us to learn and more for sports fans just to track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that. I mean, there's no, I think there's, there's some like, special sauces that go on in every team and there's you know there's some things that are unique that make things work for you and your your organization or your situation and i think those are the things that are you know what we call a competitive advantage and you're not gonna you're gonna hold those cards close to your chest but i think at the end of the day the only way for us to improve not only as a a a league uh, but more, more so as an industry is to share um, information. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not providing specific details on different players when I share on Twitter or with, with other coaches, but I'm sharing experiences and I'm sharing, um, I'm sharing ideas and things that, you know, I, if someone responds to me and says, that's a terrible idea, we tried it, it didn't work. And this is why then I, I can move on and I can stop wasting time on things that, you know, are shown to not work. So I think it's a, it's a two way street and I, I want to learn more and that's why I share. And I feel like I've gotten a lot back from people that are a lot smarter than me. And I think that's where I, I've really grown to enjoy going on Twitter and doing podcasts and, and listening to podcasts because it gives me an opportunity not only to, to share what, what worked well for me, but learn from others and try to continue to, uh, develop my model and the way I operate. Right. Well, you've been super generous with your time today. I don't want to take up uh, any more of your time. I'm sure you're busy, but I do want to end on this uh, question. Uh, who on the St. Louis Blues roster is just like an absolute freak in the gym that you wouldn't expect him to be? Like you look at this guy, you're, you wouldn't even be able to tell, but you get him in the gym and he's the beast. And is it Vladimir Tarasenko? Uh, 
<laughs> that's a good question. Uh, we've got a lot of beasts on our team for, you know, in, in a variety of, a variety of ways. I would, and let me, you know, let me tell you one thing. I think the, one of the guys that I've come to respect the most in the NHL, um, not only for his physical ability, his desire to improve his professionalism and his willingness to dive head in uh, head first into what we're doing in the gym, but more so as a, as a dad and a, a family man is Jay Bowmeister. And um, I guess if you look at how many games he's played in the league and the, the championships that he's won in his career, you know, you might think this guy's in, in pretty good shape, but I think he's probably our most unassuming beast. And, you know, I know he's, he's recovering from his um, procedure that he had recently. And, you know, he had a cardiac event that I think is, been well documented um but i would say he's he's the guy that i've i've come to respect the most uh on our roster and and, and i think he's our most unassuming beast for sure yeah i was actually just going to ask you about that so how's his recovery process been is he is he all good and hopefully taking yeah he's doing well to, yeah. yeah yeah no he's doing well um he's obviously at home um, quarantining with everyone else but he's healthy He's in good spirits. He, he prior to this um, shelter in place, you know, he was at the rink and he was there for games and spending time in the gym, hanging out, having a coffee, talking to the boys, and, and just being around. I think that was super motivating for the group. I think it was helpful for for Bo, but, but in general, yeah, he's doing well, and I think he's excited about his future. And um, you know, once all this. Uh, ends with the self quarantining. I think you know. Obviously, I'm looking forward to getting together with him and having a coffee. So it's he's doing well, and um, I'm sure he, I'm sure he appreciates all of the, the well wishes that he received. That's amazing to hear. And also, I'd be remiss if I didn't um, you know, recognize like the work that you did, the medical staff did to kind of revive him right there and then. Like, you guys did an amazing job too. So I mean, well done. And I'm sure he. Yeah, he, I mean, he I was. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I was not involved in the immediate, in the immediate uh, triage of, of his situation, but yeah, our medical staff, our equipment staff, the medical staff and the doctors from Anaheim and then the paramedics, I mean, they were phenomenal and, you know, they all contributed to uh, saving Bo's life. And so because I'm, I'm close with Bo and I, I uh, respect him, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll, be forever uh, grateful to them for the work they did. But, you know, I wasn't, I was not in the room. I was in the room. I wasn't out there uh, triaging his, his situation at all. So I don't want to, I don't want to take credit for that, but right. uh, our staff and the medical staff of the ducks, you know, like I said, they were amazing. That's amazing to hear that he's, he's made a full recovery or on his way to a full recovery. Um, I know I said that I was going to end on that, but I do have another question for you. Uh, did you get to spend the day with the cup like the players do when they win? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Actually, it was awesome. awesome. We what? brought it to our, yeah. So we, I got it at the end of August, um, which was actually perfect timing because in St. Louis, uh, school starts, uh, I think in the, maybe the second or sorry, the third week of August. So what we did was we brought the cup to my daughter's school. We had a, an assembly and all the different classes got to come up and take a picture with the cup. Uh, from there, we brought it back to the house and had a, party with 
uh, friends and family. And then um, we were able to take it to a nice restaurant who hosted us in a private room and had a, a very close knit family and friends dinner with the cops. So it was, it was an amazing experience and uh, one I'll never forget. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the over under on beers consumed out of the cup by you and also by oh. the team in total? <laughs> I think that number is uncountable. uncountable. <laughs> yeah, there's not enough machine learning to count that. Uh, yeah, that, no, that I don't. Think so. No. <laughs> Good That's question, awesome. though. Yeah. Um, well, again, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it. Anywhere can, people can find you on Twitter, uh, website. Yeah, I think I guess I'm I'm probably most active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Eric Renahan. Um, you know, I, I'm probably, like I'd say, most active there and easiest to connect with there. So. Perfect. On Twitter. Again, thanks a lot. Uh, continued success. Best of luck the rest of the season, um, except for when you play the Hawks, although you don't need luck <laughs> when you play us because we suck and you're going to beat us anyway. But thanks a lot, Eric. Take care. No problem. Thank you.